Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to the Genuine Humans podcast, and hello to Wendy as well, our fabulous co-host. Hello, how are you? Very good, thank you, Wendy. And also, I am particularly honoured that we are being joined today by Sherilyn Shackle, who is the founder and global CEO of the Marketing Academy. So welcome, Sherilyn. Thank you. The honour's all mine. (laughs) Well, I'm very keen to ask you a lot of questions, as you can imagine. And I know that Wendy is, is primed to do the same. But do you mind if we kind of go back to how you ended up founding the Marketing Academy and what led you to to that point and, you know, maybe just do a bit of a build-up of, of where you were before. Oh, my God. Look, I'm 57 years old, so it could be a long story, so I'll keep it fairly short. No, no, no. You take as much time as you like. <laughs> so I actually had no idea that this would be my path at any point in my career until I actually started thinking about doing it. So I'm not a marketer. And never have been, although I sometimes think I might have made a good one. <laughs> I do remember really young, I think it was about 19, I went for an, I went for a, like an internship interview with an advertising agency in Bristol. And I've no idea who it was, but it was uh, that was the Mad Men days, right? So I have no idea who it was. No, a little bit later than the Mad Men days. I'm not that old. And I remember turning up wearing a fur coat and white stilettos and no tights. And I was totally unworldly in every sense of the word. And I think they probably said, you know, what, why do you want to get into advertising? And I just went, oh, it's all those really sexy adverts on telly or something ridiculous. And they like marched me out of the room. I think they took one look at me and thought, what does she think she's on? March me out of the room. At their loss, I say, because <laughs> I really do think that in a sliding door moment, I think I'd have gone into advertising, not marketing. And I think I'd have made a good suit. I wouldn't have been on the creative side. I would have been a suit. So my initial upbringing was that I was what I now recognize to be a female entrepreneur's daughter. I never at the time really looked at her. I didn't even know what entrepreneurship is and was until years later. But she was, um, she was a shopkeeper. So we owned um, some retail shops in Bournemouth when I, where I was born. And I guess now looking back, it's fairly unusual in that she was the breadwinner. So she was the worker. My father, who was 20 years older than her, he was kind of the house husband, which, you know, when I was a child, that's going back 45 odd years, and in 50 years, that was really unusual. But it was my normality. It wasn't unusual for me. It did give me the opportunity to leave school at 16, which I was absolutely delighted about. And I went into the family business. So that probably could have been my path. I was in retail, working for my mum, running the shop, well, one of the shops. And um, and then it all it all kind of fell apart, really, when I was 19, because my father had a very unexpected heart attack one night. My mum was with him. And uh, nobody was expecting it. And it literally blew my mum's mind. And he was the absolute and complete love of her life. And she then very, very quickly descended into that living hell that is mental illness. Uh, She was severely mentally ill. And at that time, you know, it was really not understood well at all and was only treated really with psychiatry, so good drugs. And... um, at the age of 19 or 20, I think it was, we I had to, with my sister, who's a bit older than me, I had to sign the papers to have her committed to um, a psychiatric hospital where she stayed in and out for years. And we really lost her then at the same time. That must have been so hard, right on the back of losing your dad as well. It was. It was. It, in in yeah. effect, it was the bigger tragedy in that my dad, it, my dad was actually in his early 70s when he died. So he, he was 20 years older than my mum, right? But she was she was younger than I am now. And um, she we literally lost her, but she lived. So she lived another 20, 
20 years, but she lived this hideous grey life on really strong meds her entire life. And when she was in the psychiatric hospital the first time, she was having really bad psychotic episodes. She would have been, I guess now, she'd have been diagnosed as severe bipolar. At the time, that didn't even exist as a condition. So she got a diagnosis for everything, you know, schizophrenic, schizoaffective disorder, manic depression, chronic depression, everything. Um, But they gave her electric shock treatment which they still use, um, but they use it more rarely. They're convinced it works. They just don't know how. We had to give them our permission to do so. They had to persuade us, and they did. And it, for her, it literally fried her brain. So it was. So we lost her. This beautiful, amazing, outgoing, you know, shining light uh, of a woman, super confident, high intellect, um, really funny, we literally lost her, but she continued to live. And therefore, that that's the bigger tragedy. You know, my dad had had 72 brilliant years and went really quickly, whereas she lived on another 20 years in complete emotional agony. So that was really, really tough. But we lost the businesses. You know, we lost all of the family money. We lost the family home. And, you know, I bolted, covering myself with glory here, but I literally thought, I, I, I can't face into this. And I went to Bristol, Bright Lights Biz City, having only ever been in Bournemouth. And I thought my career would be in retail because it would be the easiest thing for me to do. But to be quite honest, I think emotionally I was all over the place and I kind of hopped from job to job, part-time here, earning money here, doing whatever I could just to get just to get through. I had a great time. <laughs> right the way up until I was like 23, oh, I had a ball. But when they started to close the psychiatric hospitals, they started to do care in the community. I don't know whether you remember it. So mm-hmm. Closed all of the psychiatric hospitals, sent all the patients home to live in what were effectively hostels. And I thought, well, I've really got to step up because she's going to, you know, be dependent on us. I've got to get my shit together. And I got a job in recruitment and I fell into it, completely fell into it. Met a bloke in a pub one night, said I needed a job. He said, you should be in recruitment. I didn't even know what it was. And he said, you, you know, you don't need to be good at anything to get into recruitment. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's, that's the career for me. And I stayed in that industry for the next um, 20 years. And it was a very successful career, to be honest. It was a job that I was good at. It's very financially rewarding. But And I, ultimately, I bought the company that I was the CEO of. So when I was in my late 30s, early 40s, I owned quite a successful headhunting practice. But I found myself on what was really a treadmill. I call it the treadmill of fear. You know, when you get a bit of success and that manifests in, you know, the size of your house, the size of your mortgage or the size of your cars or the quality of your holidays. And you start enjoying that element. And then you get the fear that you could lose it. And my fear was profound because we'd lost everything when I was younger. So I was just repeating all that in my head. And then you have to work even harder to make sure that you don't lose it. And then you start working so hard, you don't even have the time to enjoy it. And you don't give yourself the presence of mind to sit down and think, "Am I? is this filling me with joy? Mm. And the bottom line is it wasn't filling me with joy. So whilst I was really good at it and making quite a lot of money at it, I hated it. I didn't I didn't like the industry. I didn't like my job. I liked my clients. I liked my team, but I didn't like the job. And I was literally, you know, if you'd have met me then, it would have been work, 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 work. So I haven't been a particularly brilliant wife to my house, house husband, husband. So I have three, three children, uh, three girls. And at that point, you know, relatively young, but I hardly spent any time with them because I was chasing this, this fear, it was the fear of losing it all was driving me. And then I got ill and, you know, it happened. I woke up one morning in absolute agony thinking, oh my God, I must be dying. This is almost as bad as childbirth. I say almost. Childbirth really fucking painful. <laughs> but I was literally thinking, oh God, this is the end. And within hours I was in an intensive care and I stayed in intensive care for three weeks. And it was something that literally could have killed me overnight. And I was 40, I think I was 42. And my youngest daughter was still a baby. And I, you know, she wasn't even a year old. My other two were 10 and 11 at the time. And I literally remember thinking, 
if if I die today, this is a really shit day to die because what was the point of everything I've been doing over the last decade? You know, what's the, what is the, I do a talk called What's the Fucking Point? And it's kind of based on this because I literally thought, I'm actually not, I'm not full of joy. I'm not actually enjoying my life. I'm not, nobody in my life is getting the best of me. You know, I'm working 16 hours a day. I'm not taking holidays. I was a complete control freak at that time as well. I mean, a real control freak because I was always so frightened of losing it all. And um, I thought I haven't left any kind of dent in, in, in the universe. I haven't done anything for good, anything for real meaningful impact. Um, I won't have left any kind of legacy. What was this all for? And that was the sea change moment for me. It took me about two years to recover from that psychologically. Not a lot, six months to recover physically, two years psychologically. And I, and I knew that I had to change my life or my life wasn't going to last for very much longer because I'm pretty certain that this sort of conflict in my soul where I was doing a job that I didn't love and making money um, and that pulling at kind of my values, my internal compass, probably manifested that illness and I needed to change. And so I had to think, shit, you know, what I don't even, what am I going to do? I don't even know what I'm good at. You know, what, what am I going to do with my life? And I thought, I know, I'll, I will go part-time and I'll work with a charity. I can't work with a charity. You went extreme. Yeah, really, really. Oh, really extreme. You know, I knew I had to let go of the commercial shit. I had to let go of this false aspiration of monetary success. You know, I was measuring success on financial security, not wealth of health and, you know, wealth of relationships and wealth of well-being and wealth of stillness of mind, which is the true, now is my only measure of true success. And making a difference is a big measure of my success now. But it wasn't then, it just, I didn't, I didn't even give myself the time. The Marketing Academy is the result of that two-year recovery period. Um, it was just something very, very different. And it's in marketing because I'd always been absolutely passionate that marketing, media and advertising is an industry and a medium and a function could change the world. <laughs> and I always believed that the C-suite needed the CMO or the customer bang smack center of that boardroom. And 12, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. And it certainly wasn't the case that this marketing skill set was considered highly enough and worthy enough of real investment from a talent and leadership perspective. Um, CMOs weren't considered to be credible successors to CEOs. And it used to drive me nuts because I'd always believed that, you know, the medium of marketing, media and advertising is the industry that influences every citizen on the planet. It's real power. And therefore, investing in the leadership capability and all of the skills and capabilities within that industry and function should be paramount, and it wasn't. And I wanted an opportunity to create something that would bring the community together as a force for good to invest in the emerging upcoming talent and, and senior leaders and um, in a way that wasn't commercial, which is what the Marketing Academy is. Wow. So I'm not a marketer, but people think I am. They <laughs> assume that because I founded this thing and I run it, that I'm a marketer, but I'm not. I'm still fascinated by the craft. So in that two years of, of that recovery, were you just sort of spending a lot of time with other marketing people? I'm, I'm curious because you went sort of from maybe a charity and then the inspiration for the Marketing Academy. Do you think it was always there in the background, perhaps? Developing people was in the background for me yeah. that entire two years because I was on the board of a leadership development company called The Living Leader, which is actually now embedded in the scholarship program that we run on the Marketing Academy. So developing talent was the real driver for me. Mm. I felt that if I was going to create something that was non-commercial and that was going to utilise, you know, 
its own industry, all of the great and the good of its own industry to help to develop that talent. And it needed to be in a function or industry that was going to make the biggest impact. Yeah. And I did have a number of CMOs in my life because as a headhunter, whilst we didn't co- concentrate exclusively on marketing, we would recruit CMOs we would we would have mandates to to hire CMOs and I naturally gravitated towards those searches and therefore had a number of people in my life that were very successful CMOs and in the in the seeking period where I was figuring out what this thing was going to do there was a number of what I call fortunate events that I believe the universe delivers you something when you're seeking. And I was definitely seeking. I was playing with this thing. Could I set up a charity that's about developing young talent? Could I could I do something as a side hustle? Because I was still having to run my search. It was our only income was my search firm. I was still having to run that. Could I do something on the side in this amazing industry? And then I was invited to a... I was on the board, sorry, of a very big uh, executive search network. So a network of 30-odd owner-managed businesses across 28 countries, and I was on their main board. And so I get invited to some really cool stuff around the world. And the Canadian partner at that time was running a huge, very, very successful recruitment business in Canada where their specialism was marketing, media and advertising. And his side hustle is that he created an awards event in that industry that is still running now, hugely successful. And he invited me to the kind of a gala party for this awards thing. And I turned up in Toronto in the middle of the bloody winter and the event was at the Four Seasons and I walked into a room of 400 emerging talent in marketing, media and advertising. This was in the January before we launched the Academy the following February. And in this room, he had a whole load of award winners that they called, I think it was called the Marketing Hall of Legends, and they would induct these really famous, famous, famous marketers and ad people and educators into this like Hall of Fame for marketing. And I was sitting on a table with a number of them. So, you know, the founder of the Cirque du Soleil, the CEO of the Four Seasons, who's Canadian, you know, all sitting on my table. So I was a guest of the founder and I could see all of these young, talented people sort of looking at this table, you know, with goggle eyes thinking, oh, my God, I'd love to get, you know, time with those people. And I said to Stefan, who I often credit as being the spark of of, of me creating the academy I said to Stefan what do you do with all of these amazing leaders that you've inducted into this into the hall of legends and he said well we don't really do anything with them and I said well but can't you can you set up some sort of mentoring for them you know where they gift a bit of their time to all of these young emerging talent and he said oh that's a really good idea but no we don't do that and it and it literally was this spark when I was on the plane on the way home I was thinking I wonder if I could bring that to the UK. And and initially I thought, I'll bring an awards event to the UK. Remember, I don't know a huge amount about marketing, media and advertising this time. I'll bring the Hall of Legends to the UK. We'll do this big award thing. But the, the, the people that are awarded, they have to give a certain amount of their time and they'll be mentors and we'll identify some up and coming young people. Right. And I thought, that could be really good. And I phoned Stefan when I get back and I go, how do you feel about me like pinching the idea, but building it? Because I really want this sort of teaching thing underneath it. And he went, oh, it's amazing. Do whatever whatever you like. So I started to form this idea. Actually, following that form quite quickly, because I then went to some of the CMOs that I knew. And I kind of got, I've got this idea, you know, we could do this awards thing. We could bring these people, these really big leaders, senior leaders in. And every one of them went, Sherilyn, our industry does not need another awards event. <laughs> I thought, okay, okay. And they go, we've got this thing called CAN. And I, I have no idea what that even is. And, you know, we've got the Marketing Effectiveness Awards and I have no idea what that is. And they go, the award thing, no, 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 it's overdone. But I think you've got something in this sort of mentoring thing. And 
I obviously had some really great clients and I had really senior contacts in my clients and they were mostly the big companies of the day, you know, O2, Sky, Unilever. They were all big clients of mine. And I had, so I had fortunate to have access because if I had a client, they'd they'd normally become a friend. And I, I, I literally wrote a one page straw man. I've still got it. Straw man strategy, really top line about what this thing would be. And I thought, I'm going to get a group of 20 CMOs together and they're all going to de- dedicate their time as mentors. And they're all going to tell me who their top talent is. And then we're going to mix their top talent with that mentor. Because everybody at the time, and it's still the case now, were really frustrated that they would say, we can't get learning from outside of our organization. So unless we hire in talent from another tree, we don't get any real outside in learning. So Unilever at the time, bastion of learning, right? Internally. And so I went to some of the CEOs and some of the CMOs and just went, what if... We could, you know, we when we do a search for you, Unilever, you often say you want us to search outside of your industry to bring you in new, fresh talent. So we go and search in places like Sky or O2 or, or you know, gaming or broadcasting or w- whatever the industries are. What if I could hook you up with the CMOs in those organisations and you just swap, you swap your high potential talent around you all and then you're sharing all of your knowledge and all of the external learning together as a community. And everybody was like super supportive. And then it grew. (laughs) (laughs) The whole idea completely snowballed because, you know, once the kind of the word was out, it had this sort of magical essence to it. We were right in the middle of recession. It was 2009 when I was doing the build for it. We didn't launch until February 2010. So 2009, I think Northern Rock had gone down like the previous um, September oh, yeah. and one of the big Lehman Brothers or somebody like that went down around about the same time. So right in the grip of it, which actually meant that people at the C-suite at that time had time on their hands because, you know, we were like, deep 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 in recession and everybody had gone oh my god this is going to go for a long time you know we just got to dig deep and I got access to people during that year that I'd never have got access to and everyone I met loved the idea because there was no commercial element to it I was really really firm that this needed to be if I was going to use the time of the c-suite executives across the whole industry and amazing speakers and faculty and coaches. If I was going to use all of these wonderful people's times, I was not going to charge for it. I was not going to make a penny on their back. And everybody loved this thing that was quite a force for good in the middle of a recession where actually anybody that was relatively successful or a company that was successful at the time were kind of being beaten up, you know, for the whole fat cat thing causing the recession. And I guess I was giving an opportunity to gift something back everybody was hugely embracive of it and then of course I realized how close the network was in that function and industry so I would speak to a CEO of an agency and he'd give me five people to go and speak to his peers in other agencies because there's no compete around this it's this wonderful thing that everybody leans into and within a year we'd launched it and we launched with the scholarship program which is for emerging leaders in marketing, media and advertising, kind of in their 30s, I guess. We don't put age on it, but that's kind of the sweet spot. Um, and we launched in um, February 2010. And we haven't stopped since. And it's just grown no. grown and grown since. And it's it's just such an incredible organisation. And I'm always so impressed by by uh, all of the people you can tell who's who's been through the, the programs. Something that definitely sort of resonated. So I suppose because you've been in that point where you felt that fear and you sort of pushed through the other side, do you think that's become a bit of a personal mission to sort of help people unlock their fear so that they don't go through the, the trauma of getting ill? Is, is it something that you sort of feel like is a bit of a personal mission to help others as well? Yeah, with, with, without a shadow of a doubt, I honestly believe it's the main driver. I thought at the time, if I can just support, if I can share with just one person what I wish I'd done, 
and enable them to not have to nearly die, to at least give themselves the time to reflect on some of the choices they're making and some of the beliefs they're holding that's driving those choices and why, then that would be a good job done. So an example of how this shows up now, purpose is embedded in the scholarship program. And we don't talk about purpose as in company purpose or brand purpose or any of that shit. We talk about why are you on this planet and what are you going to do with your time on it? Um, so we run learning, you know, around it. And I share my story in far greater detail. And we get them to do exercises that enables them to, uh, to begin to uncover what is actually going on in their life that truly fills them with joy, that truly feeds their soul. Um, we give them the opportunity to look at it and decide whether there's some changes or shifts they could make to walk more towards it. I don't think that you find, I don't think you choose your purpose, right? I believe that you discover it over time. I also believe that you do need to be seeking it for the, for the opportunities to land. And I've, and I say, I often say when I'm with the scholars that if only I had given myself the opportunity to really look at how I was living my life and the choices and the lack of impact or lack of positive impact I was making with my capabilities or with my time, like with my children and my husband, I might have created the academy, you know, 10 years before and we might be in 20 countries by now and therefore impacting even more people. Uh, which is obviously my, a big a big driver be, because it was only really facing into it and giving myself for being forced to give myself the time to analyze what the hell was going on for me that, that then and then beginning to seek what it was going to look like only in that did the opportunities present because those opportunities have been there for years right I'd known this Stefan guy in the in Canada for 10 years the opportunity had always been there. I just never looked at my life in a way that could enable me to make really informed choices about how I was going to live it. And are there people who have sort of given you that help over the years or that support or have been a particular influence to you in your career or in your life? Yeah, there are. There are a number of people that were in my life up to, so in my sort of headhunting life, right? There was, um, you know, the guy I bought my search firm, from who must be 95 now he used to be the global ceo of mars interestingly enough and he'd kind of semi-retired and a lot of c-suite executives spend shitloads of money on headhunters and always think they can do it better so he'd set up a headhunting firm and i started working for him when i was really quite young and he was now i've been through my own leadership journey actually really understanding what leadership is all about he was a phenomenal leader in that he completely enabled and empowered me to fly and without him i would never have got to the stage that i got as a headhunter and to be honest, having not got quite to the stage that I've got as a headhunter, I may not have been able to set up the marketing academy in the speed I did, because the one thing you really get as a headhunter is amazing connections, many of whom become friends um, in multiple different industries, and in my case, countries, that provided me with a network for life. So he was somebody that always guided and mentored me in a huge way and enabled and empowered me. I never really saw, my mum was a huge guiding light for me in that I never really saw gender imbalance. I I kind of intellectually knew it was there, but I never saw it show up because I never expected to. And I often think, I'm sure that was, that was Alan, because he never, I never felt like a female employee because that's not how he treated me. So he was a real guider. The the founder of The Living Leader, which is the organisation I dropped as a non-exec, she is really, really powerful and big in my life. And she's always challenged my thinking. And she was, you know, part of my thinking when I was setting up the Marketing Academy. But then once I once the, the snowball that was the Marketing Academy started, oh, my God, I cannot express how many phenomenal people that I have in my life. Because here's the thing. 
I may have had that spark of an idea, right? But I didn't create the Marketing Academy. It was a combination of even in the year before we launched, when we were literally building it, there were like 100 people involved in that. All of these amazing people who came on board as mentors, I remember meeting Catherine Tolper, who is a very renowned board-level executive coach, runs a coaching practice. I was introduced to her by a CMO because she was coaching the CMO, and he said, you need to meet up with her because I think something might happen if you do. And my God, she created the whole of the executive coaching element that is embedded in both the scholarship and the fellowship program. She's been in my life for 12 years. You know, she said, why isn't executive coaching in this program? And I went, oh, because executive coaches do that for a living. So they'd actually have to give up money to give time to coach the scholars and fellows. So I don't feel like I could ask for that. And she said, I think you'll find, Sherilyn, that executive coaches are the most generous people you'd ever hope to meet. And she was right. We've got 140 executive coaches around the world, some of which have been supporting us for a decade. I was introduced to an amazing woman that was at Diageo at the time. She's also an executive coach now, Margot Hennessy. She was working for Diageo and um, she'd come on board as an exec with Catherine and we hadn't launched yet, so we had to build. And I remember her saying to me, this mentoring thing, the mentoring element of the program, she goes, what kind of learning framework have you put around that mentoring? And I go, what? <laughs> she says, you know, what's the expectation when they have a mentoring session? What's the structure? You know, how are you going to frame it? What's the mentor's role? What's the understanding? I went, oh, my God, I don't know any of that. But she was a, she was running learning and development for Diageo across the world. And she went, I think I can help you. <laughs> She was the one that designed the whole mentoring element up front. You know, there was there's so many people um, that were and are still involved. I think there's 1,500 people around the world in the community. So whilst I always yeah. say I, I, I lead a team of seven, really small team, you know, overworked, underpaid, love them deeply, completely passionate about what they're doing, really stretched. But we've got another 1,500 people. That, that are part of the academy that we can call on for anything at any time. All generously gifting time, resource, energy. And we've got sponsors now. I mean, obviously, we, I did need to get it a little bit commercial. It's a not-for-profit. But I remember the first two sponsors were Cabri and O2. Both of the CMOs at the time are now still, are, they're on my board. Uh, in fact, Phil Rumble, who was the CMO at Cabris at the time, he's my UK chair. And I remember both of them saying, you know, we want our companies to get involved in this. You know, I'm gifting my time as a mentor, love it. But, you know, how do I get my company involved? And I'm like, well, you can obviously nominate talent. And I remember Phil saying, aren't you going to need some money for this? And I was going, well, no, I hope I don't. Because in my naivety, I was thinking I could do all of this thing for free. You know, because it's all volunteering, right? I don't need any money. Phil went, well, what about somebody to run it? I'm thinking, oh, my God, yeah, somebody's got to run it. Okay. I don't don't know. And, um, you know, you're going to do these boot camps and things, which were in the original design. You know, that's going to take cost. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And he said, well, how do I sponsor? And I go, well, I don't know. I haven't worked it out. And he goes, well, how much money do you need? And I go, I don't know. I haven't worked it out. And so he literally said, this is how money, this is how much I think I can support with. And then Sally at O2, I have a very similar conversation with, probably within days of that, they both gave us the the, the money that enabled that first launch. And I didn't, I didn't really think I even had the money for a party to launch it, but I had a mentor in Google. And I remember saying to him, Mark, I don't suppose we could, we could have Google HQ as our launch party. And he said, yeah. Of course you can. And we'll do the catering and we'll provide all of the all of the drink. And I thought, oh my God. And I found ever since, you know, people want to help, they want to support, they want to input. Now we've got twenty there's twenty brand partners around the world because we obviously do way more now. We're in three countries now. We've got two two main programs. We've got a virtual campus program which six thousand people are enrolled on. You know, we run uh, six selection processes every year. We run alumni programs in all of the countries. So it's much, much bigger now. And so we've got 20 brands that support us in all of the programs in different markets. And we only ever raise as much money as we need to execute and deliver the programs. So it's a little bit uh, commercial, but I mean, I, I went into it with real naivety. 
if you could, uh, there's so many things that you could choose from this, but is there a single thing that you can pinpoint that you're most proud of in your career or your life? Oh my God, the most single point. I guess I am proud of the pivot. <laughs> so I, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I didn't slide back, which I could so easily have done. I would I, see. I, I, I have conflict around this, right? Because I want to say I'm proud of what the marketing academy is, right? But that would infer that it's about me, and it hasn't. It, I don't truly, truly don't believe that it is about me. So I look. It, I look at the marketing academy, and I literally think, "Oh my god, it's awesome." everything about it is amazing all of the people involved are absolutely amazing but it wasn't about me so I get proud of the things that our people do right I get deep when I see the scholars do a showcase graduation where they put on an event at the end of their year to thank the industry you know I am like I'm usually sobbing I'm known as a crier you know I'm normally sobbing I'm proud of them so that so it so that everything within the academy gives me like moments of pride and joy and love and all of the time, um, but the, it as an entity is so much bigger than me that I can't just say well I'm proud that I set up the academy because I didn't, I was one of and a huge group of people without whom we couldn't it it would have stayed as an idea in my head, so I I'm very proud of what all of our community do. So I'm proud that the industry supports this. I'm proud of the industry for supporting it. I'm proud of every scholar that shows up and that sucks the learning out of it. I'm proud of every fellow. I'm proud of those moments where they get a promotion, which is nice, but actually also proud when they come to me and they say, going through this program has made me a better human and I think I'm a better husband as a result of it. But those are the things that spark those real moments of wow. And I think just... Talking about the industry, what is exciting you at the moment and what do you still think that we need to change? Well, a lot is exciting me. I think it is a very, very exciting industry. So if, if I look at the kind of the, brand, the client side, um, which is a, you know, a function within, within the business, the really cool thing that I think has been happening for a few years now is that the role and remit of the CMO is growing exponentially and therefore they're being given additional responsibilities to sit under their domain, meaning that the impact that they can make in their organisations is definitely, definitely increased. And the CMO, the CMO function is being seen as far, far more vital. I've always believed it to be the lifeblood of the entire organisation. It's now becoming recognised as more like that. And CMOs are being recognised by being able to go up the career trajectory into the main CEO spot or into the main board. So that's quite exciting. I think it's also exciting in the agencies. You know, you've got the media agencies, the media owners, the creative agencies. There's a huge amount of change, right? The excitement is in all of the new technologies, all of the innovation, everything that the pandemic has just caused us all to do differently. I think the agency world is still figuring this out and I, there will be more change, I think, coming. They're figuring out their place. They're figuring out, you know, the, the integration of, you know, the media agencies versus creative agencies versus professional services firms. And I don't think anyone's absolutely clear on how that's all going to end up. Uh, but I find that quite exciting. And I do think that more change is coming. What I'm hopeful for is that, you know, the pandemic, which changed everybody's lives on a global basis in a short period of time altogether, has driven more comfort around change and has made people feel, you know, comfortable in getting curious, comfortable in feeling uncomfortable, comfortable with uh, new new stuff, working differently, behaving differently, thinking differently, because the pandemic kind of caused that, right? The incredibly terrifying time, change happening in every single aspect and element of your life. We all got that little bit more resilient to it. So the change that, that I do feel is on its way, I'm hoping is going to be embraced. An exciting time to be in the industry. There, but there are still some sort of systemic issues that still need to be changed, right? And, and so one of the things that I'm really passionate about and the Academy is passionate about is that we really begin 
to recognise that we do not have a representative demographic within marketing, media and advertising that mirrors the people of the planet, right? We still are lacking diversity in every context of the word across both client side and agency side. The uh, historical way of getting into our industry is still there. You need to be white, middle-class, Anglo-Saxon from a really good school. That'll get you in. Yeah. Or you need to be in agency land. You need to be supported by your parents enough that you can go and work on an internship for free for a year. You're usually the son or daughter of a client. That's been the route in, right, historically. I We're better. I do think it's improved. But we're not – there's a lag in the talent pool, literally from an age group, where that real richness of diversity of talent is not tipping up yet in the, high, in the higher roles, which means that there aren't very many role models for kids that come from a slightly disadvantaged background or, you know, they flunked out of school or their parents didn't support them to go through further education or, you know, they might have made some bad choices or they might have joined a gang when they were 16 years old or they might have been in care or whatever. That's where the richness of the diversity that our industry needs to attract sits, which means that we need to break the paradigm of how they enter our industry. Uh, Richie at the School of Marketing is doing some great stuff around this. So Richie is a, a Marketing Academy scholarship alumni, created the, the School of Marketing, I think, about a year after he graduated. They're doing amazing stuff to raise the profile of our industry in the kind of school kids up to 18 years old and also doing a lot from an apprentice training perspective. But five years ago, we launched a charity uh, the Marketing Academy Foundation, standalone charity. It shares, our, shares the first part of our brand name. It's, there's no other direct connection other than me. And that's run by Daryl Fielding. And the work that we do is we're literally providing, actually providing full-time, fully salaried apprenticeships from youngsters who are not from that privileged upbringing to give them a year's work experience at full salary and some amazing organizations who host them and who nurture and develop them and we mentor them and we coach them and we provide them with pastoral care right the way through the year that was a direct result of me not seeing the real breadth of diversity coming through the scholarship in the UK Mm. so we're behind other countries you know if you look at our scholarship in Australia, the ri- uh, I'm sorry, in the US, the richness of diversity within a single cohort is fabulous. We don't see that still. We struggle with that a little. It's getting better. We struggle with that a little in the scholarship. So I had this sort of real dream, and this is something I would be proud of. The first time one of our graduated apprentices gets appointed to the scholarship program, I will be, you you will hear me scream all around the world because that's the legacy that we should be leaving is to create this amazing talent pool of diverse, in every single context of the word, a diverse community of young people are going to get into our industry and are going to fly. So hopefully in 10 years time, you know, we're going to be seeing CMOs, agency CEOs, C-suite reflecting the population that we're that, w- that we have influence over you know at the moment we're in a bubble mm. how do we in this little privileged bubble that is marketing media and advertising really well paid you know gigs high intellect fairly privileged you know how do we really influence the citizens on the planet's leading very very different lives so we need to bring that in and i, I think that's a change that's got to come you know, we, we're still behind. We still have not cracked this yet. And it's essential for, 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 the, for the power of the work to have the imp- impact it needs around the world. And what an incredible legacy that will be. We're coming near to the end of the podcast, but before we finish, we've got time for a few quick fire questions if that's okay just getting a little bit more a bit more personal I think I think you've allowed us to get very personal already but uh, Wendy do you want to kick start yes I'd like to know what's your idea of a perfect weekend and do you have any guilty pleasures <laughs> my real guilty pleasure is is literally lying on my sofa and watching Netflix <laughs> I'm not proud of it I'm also an avid true crime podcast fan 
In that, I, re- I remember, I remember once going on holiday. I was, I was on holiday for a week. I decided that I was literally going to downtime, and my daughter messaged me on about day four, and she said, "You just popped up on my Spotify thing as one of the most highest number of hours of somebody who's been listening to podcasts." <laughs> <laughs> like eight eight hours of lying on a sunbed listening to true crime episodes over and over and over again so it's a really guilty pleasure but my absolute favorite weekend would be in Spain where I'm fortunate and privileged enough to have a small small apartment would be to have all of my daughters and their partners with us I'd want to sunbathe on Saturday do nothing but lie in the sun listen to my podcast on a Saturday go out for a fantastic family meal on Saturday evening get up in the morning have a stroll along the promenade and eat breakfast in a wonderful cafe that's my nirvana that sounds lovely Absolute heaven. Amazing. Also, if you haven't heard this podcast already, but uh, there's um, Drunk Women Solving Crime. I don't know if that's one no. that's coming across your radar yet, but it's it's combining lots of things I love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Dateline fan, right? I reckon I've heard every single Dateline episode over the last 10 years because they're all on there. That's my that's my big guilty, guilty pleasure. Now, I think that you're uh, very... Similar to me and Wendy, that we believe that business is better done over food. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a current favourite restaurant or maybe an all-time restaurant that you love dearly? Gosh, it's actually been quite a while since I've been out in in, um, in restaurants, obviously. But yes, I do have one, and it's called Iceberg, and it's in Sydney, and it's overlooking Bondi Beach. And I don't wow. think I have ever turned down an opportunity to to eat at icebergs. What <laughs> whenever I'm in Australia, and again, I'm fortunate, privileged, lucky enough that I get down there three times a year outside of a pandemic, and. It just Google it. It is beautiful. And their food is fantastic. So that would be my go-to place in the world. That would be the restaurant I'd eat at my last meal, I reckon. And look out over that glorious view. That sounds amazing. And I know you do love to travel and, and obviously you get to travel in, in, in your work. Is there a country that you still haven't visited that you've you've still got on your, your bucket list? Yes, I haven't done Thailand and Malaysia and you know I haven't done that area I've done Singapore I've never done Thailand and I really 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 would love to 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 do Thailand and ironically given how many times I go down to Australia I haven't done New Zealand either Um, and both of those would be absolutely on my bucket list. Now I suspect your days are probably quite full so if Tamara and I had it in our power to gift you an extra hour every day how would you spend it? Oh, a beautiful question. Every day. I've got an hour every day. Oh, my God, what would I do? I would do absolutely nothing. I would literally use it as time to think. And and, and I do try and manage my life a little bit like that so that I give myself that space. But honestly, if somebody said, you know, for the next hour, I've just given you a magic hour, I would sit and think and I would reflect and I would think about what I was grateful for in my life and I would think about the things I need to do for the people in my life and how to spend more time with them. I would literally think. That's a lovely answer. And how would your friends describe you? I think it would depend on which ones you spoke to. (laughs) And I'm the same with all of them. They would, I think they'd think I'm a bit mad, actually. They would probably go, what would they say? They would say... She's larger than life, possibly, I think they'd say. And they might say she's a bit of a whirlwind, I think. She's very (laughs) vocal. It's quite opinionated. Well, it's really funny. See, I believe that I'm um, an introverted extrovert. Yeah. In that people believe me to be an extrovert. So people around me that that don't know me deeply, deeply will probably say I'm an extrovert. But I'm not actually... I'm um, I'm I'm much much more introverted. I just can be. I, I've just got a, 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 like a confident personality, and therefore I can be perceived as quite extroverted. I'd rather be at home with a cup of tea, right, sitting on my sofa with my slippers, than be at a party, right, a, a, a any day of the week. And one of my friends once I had this conversation with one of my friends in Australia. She's a dear dear friend, and I said, "Should I actually think I'm I'm an introverted extrovert?" She said, "No, Sherilyn, I'd actually say you're antisocial." <laughs> 
I love this because normally it's like loyal. Yeah, she would be the one that I would go, oh gosh, I've been invited to this thing, this event. And oh my God, I'd just rather be at home. So it's because she's so close to me. She'd go, no, 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 Sherilyn, you are actually antisocial. It was so funny. I thought, yeah, there's an element of me that's, that's probably right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know that you are such a, a busy woman and we have been incredibly lucky to have you. Is there anything that you feel that we should have asked you, but we haven't? Or would you like to end with any sort of closing thoughts? So my closing thoughts are, I guess, well, I'd like to leave people with that that concept that you really would be advised to give yourself the time to really think about how you're living your life and recognize that you're probably making more choices than you believe you are in that there will be lots of things that are happening in your life that you think I have to do this I've got to do this I must do this I need to do this usually because there's other people involved or your employer involved you don't need have to should do you know must do anything you literally have the power to choose the way in which you think about stuff. So if there are things going on in your life that's causing you to be frustrated, anxious, worried, concerned, only we own our own thoughts, right? We own our own thoughts, which means that we've got the power and opportunity to change them, to think differently. So if there's stuff going on in your life and you really think that's something that just drains the living lifeblood out of me, either change it or change the way you think about it. Because I believe if I'd given myself the breathing space, as I said, to look at some of the choices that I was making, literally feeling like I was a prisoner of it. So I didn't have a now, I didn't have a choice. Understanding that I had a choice, I think would have made a big difference to me. So, you know, take that time, sit on a mountaintop and think about what sparks joy in my life. What fills my soul with fire? Well, what would I do as a career if I, if I didn't need the money? What am I absolutely passionate about? What makes me cry in the world? What can I talk about for hours? What am I brilliant at? What do people come to me for? And start thinking about those things. Because if you start consciously thinking about those things, you will begin to see opportunities for you to do more of that coming into your life. But you need to give yourself the space first. Put on your own oxygen mask first. Take time Give yourself the, the safety to let your thoughts go wherever they need to go. And then just have a think, have a recognise some of the choices that you're making and know that you have the power to change things. Way more power than you may believe you have. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.